Welcome to VSI, Variation Selection Inheritance, a podcast production of the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action. I'm your symbiote, Randall Hayes. This is our 40th episode, and the first time I've interviewed someone without actually reading his book first. In fact, it was only after I stumbled across a review of The Lost Wolves of Japan on the internet that I found out that Brett Walker was not, in fact, a Texas Ranger, but a historian at Montana State, specializing in Japanese history. Which would also suggest that he might be a ninja. But, obviously, he wasn't going to admit that to someone he'd just met over the phone, so we mostly talked about his book. How do you just decide to go to Japan and learn about wolves? Well, so my my area of specialty is uh, East Asian and Japanese history. And so um, I've long been interested in uh, 18th and 19th and early 20th century Japan. In graduate school, I studied environmental history as well. So a lot of my uh, published work, including other books, are um, histories of how humans interact with the environment and how the environment shapes human history. So I've studied a lot about um, epidemics and their role in history. I've studied uh, resource depletion. Uh, you know, uh, over um, over hunting, for example, and dependency among Japan's indigenous population, the Ainu. Breaking in here for just a moment to explain that the Ainu are to Japan what the Indians were to the Old West, hunter-gatherers who got pushed out by later agricultural settlers. They really don't appear in Japanese pop culture all that much. When I first became interested in the Wolf uh, Project, I was actually teaching at Yale University at the time, and I was working on another research project on um, a famine in Japan that had occurred in 1749 that was caused by an overabundance of wild boar. And it was a really interesting famine. What had happened was in, in the northeastern part of Japan, um, the, the agricultural regimes had been transformed by birth and growth of these large cities in Japan, like Osaka and present-day Tokyo, what was called Edo at the time. Breaking in again, if you've ever seen Samurai Champloo set during the Edo period, kind of, anyway, it has a lot of weird anachronisms in it, like beatboxing ronin. Anyway, that's the Edo they're always talking about. I always wondered why the emperor lived there instead of Tokyo. Now I know. In the early part of the 18th century, around 1710, the city of Edo, or present-day Tokyo, was probably the largest city in the world. And a lot of uh, surrounding agricultural lands were transformed into basically cash crop farms that supplied a lot of merchandise and food items that were sold in the city. And uh, the area that I was looking at in the northeast, an area called Hachinohe, had um, was raising soybean that would be used for tofu and soy sauce and a variety of other foods in the city. And basically what happens is, um, because of a variety of environmental changes, uh, weather uh, events, including uh, the little ice age, it leads to this overabundance of wild boar, which eat all of the peasant crops and cause this massive uh, famine in the Northeast that killed thousands. It was a very dramatic event. And when I was reading about it, I came across this Japanese historian who mentioned that one of the reasons why there may have been such an explosion, what, what a lot of historians call a kind of ungulate eruption, might have been the slow disappearance of Japanese wolves. 
And I had been studying Japanese history for a long time, but I didn't even know that Japan had ever had wolves. So I, I watch a lot of anime. Yeah, yeah. And, and there are wolves. I knew that there were foxes in Japan, but mm-hmm. there are a lot of wolves in Japanese anime. And I had always yeah. assumed that was another one of those things that they just borrowed from European literature. That's what I thought too. I mean, it's interesting because foxes are very much a part of Japanese lore. They have this transformative power. They, um, they are very closely connected with what is called uh, Inari, which is a kind of Shinto uh, belief system. So foxes have long had this important place uh, in the Japanese imagination and have been closely connected to um, certain kinds of religious traditions within Japan. But I was the same way. I'd never heard that there were wolves. And in fact, when I first got interested in the project, it was kind of before Princess Momonoke and some of these more popular uh, Japanese animated films that actually depicted wolves. And so I had kind of thought as well that maybe it was just an import from Europe. But the more I started to look into it, the more I realized that not only uh, was there or had there been these populations of wolves in Japan, but they had been very closely related um, to Shinto religion, to Buddhism, uh, to Confucianism, that they had this long, complicated history in Japan, one that paralleled a lot of the social and political and environmental changes that Japan had undergone over a historical time. And they offered a very, I think, uh, kind of original lens through which to view some of these more profound changes in Japanese history. You know, in the West, we know very well that wolves have been uh, the subject of great disdain. They are oftentimes associated with the devil. They are oftentimes likened to these demons that prey on the, you know, the, the flock. Uh, and that kind of thing that they've been persecuted, they've been hunted, they've been exterminated. You know, that story has been well told. And I think it's pretty clear that it's the wolf's relationship to uh, animal husbandry um, that it eats our livestock, but also its relationship to animal husbandry in monotheistic religions like Christianity that had set it up for this kind of annihilation. So the Jews, or the Israelites, if you go back far enough, they were, they were pastoral herding peoples, right? Yeah. They, they had flocks and they followed them around. The Japanese were not herding peoples, were they? No, they were not. And that's, I think, the, the critical variable. So if you look at that sort of Judeo-Christian tradition, herdsmanship, the idea of, of having livestock, was associated with definitions of civilization. It was associated with definitions of culture. It was associated with kind of settled agrarian societies that became the hallmark of you know, Western civilization at a certain level. In China and Japan, because you have a Confucian-based civilization, Confucian-based civilizations define civilization more along the lines of grain farming. So if you look at traditional Confucius writings or if you look at you know, um, how definitions of civility are formed within East Asia, Oftentimes, they're more closely associated with rice and grain farming. And I think nowhere is that more true than in Japan. So in Japan, the animals that are, that are noxious animals, the animals that are associated with, um, with depriving people of food and being evil animals are actually wild boar and deer because those are the animals that preyed on the rice crops that actually fed people. And for that reason, wolves were seen as beneficial animals because they protected grain crops from deer and wild boar. So one of the things I talk about in the book, for example, is even the, the Chinese characters 
for okami, which is the Japanese word for wolf, they literally depict the word a good animal. I mean, they're literally a depiction of the word good animal. And then the word okami itself could be read as phonetically meaning great god. So it's clear that from early Japanese history, wolves had a very important place, I think, in this agricultural you know, civilization imagination because of their place in protecting grain crops. You know, it's interesting. We put a lot of weight into these cultural definitions of these animals, or we put a lot of weight into how culture shapes these animals. And so we might say, well, you know, wolves have been persecuted in the West because of Little Red Riding Hood and, and these kind of uh, stories that depict the wolves as evil. But, evil. but in many respects, what, under, what, what is the foundation for those stories are materialist ways of living. You know, what feeds people? You know, what is your agricultural system? You know, where do you place the weight of your culture? And as it turns out, because the Japanese were part of this Confucian world order, because they had relatively little animal husbandry, and because animal husbandry was actually associated with barbarism and not civility, you know, the Japanese had very strong associations between their culture and rice. You know, wolves were held in very high esteem up until the middle of the 19th century. Allow me to break in here to prepare you for our discussion of Holo the Wise Wolf. In the anime Spice and Wolf, Holo is an immortal earth spirit who usually takes the form of a slender young woman with a fluffy white-tipped tail. She can also turn into a ginormous wolf when she needs to kill people. But to change form, she has to eat either blood or wheat. Which seems weird, as wolves do not eat grain. This has always confused the hell out of me, until this very phone call. So that, that clears up, really, a lot for me, something that I had been wondering about. Because there's, a, there's an anime, I don't know if you know it, called Spice and Wolf, where one of the main characters is this Japanese wolf girl fertility goddess who uh, was known for making the fields more fertile. And that I'd never been able to figure out what the connection there was. And you just cleared mm. it up for me. <laughs> Thank you. One of the shrines uh, that I went to in Japan when I was doing research at Shinto Shrines looking at the relationship between wolves and those shrines, um, a lot of them would hand out votive tablets um, that are kind of part of a Shinto Buddhist tradition, but they would depict um, wolves with pups. And when I asked um, the priests at the particular Shinto shrine, you know, what the symbolism of this particular tablet was, and he said it was very much for fertility. So in the 17th and 18th century, peasants would come get these images of wolves with pups bring them back to their farms in the hope that it would engender more fertility within the land. And then he said that more recently that fertility symbolism is kind of translated into contemporary Japanese culture and a lot of young couples that are hoping to have children will come get these tabulates and bring them to their homes um, because they believe that that will help them be more fertile and being able to have their own family. Oh, wow. So it's, it sounds like you couldn't ask for a better society to be a wolf in. Yeah, a better society. That's an interesting way of putting it. I mean, you certainly couldn't ask for a better culture, a better society in some respects, right? Because, you know, the, the wolf, even though, and again, one of the distinctions I make in that study is that 
you know, I'm not saying that wolves weren't killed because, you know, clearly in the Northeast, one of the things that wolves did compete with was some of these large horse pastures that were overseen by these domain lords that were called daimyo. Uh, this is in the kind of samurai governance period of Japanese history into the middle of the 19th century. Horses were a very important part of warrior culture, and there is some evidence that wolves periodically preyed on horses and that there were wolf hunts in the Northeast to try to, uh, to kill offending animals. And also after 1720 or so, rabies appears to have been introduced into Japan, probably from um, the continent through trade. There's really bad rabies outbreaks um, from about 1720 onward, um, and that leads to uh, wolf attacks on, on people that are traveling on some of these main travel circuits. Ooh, ooh, that makes sense too. In season one of Spice and Wolf, everybody in the show is terrified of wolves attacking people. Now you can just assume that's a stupid writer, because wolves don't do that. Or you can assume it's something that's specific for a Japanese audience that you're not picking up on. Which is what I did assume. I'm glad to see it is the latter. Of course, they did hire a shepherdess to protect them. And she did use a bell instead of a sling, like King David, from the Bible. But maybe that's because they're Confucian and not Christian. Enough geekery. Back to the interview. The wolf image is not, it's not without its tarnish um, as a result of disease and as a result of them preying on horses. But again, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is that but wolves are never annihilated. There's never a discussion within Japan that it, we need to absolutely rid the islands of these animals so as to better be able to raise the livestock that we want to. And, and actually, that's not true of other animals. I mean, there were never campaigns on Japan proper to try to annihilate, say, wild boar, which have always been a kind of the bane of farmers' existence within Japan. But on the small island of Tsushima, for example, which in Japan's early modern times was a kind of domain unto itself, there were attempts to systematically cordon off parts of the island and kill off all the wild boar in this kind of systematic manner because they, were, uh, they did so much damage to agriculture. So it's not that the Japanese were beyond trying to annihilate animals. It's not that the Japanese were beyond trying to eliminate these animals that they competed with. But in the case of wolves, there was enough of this kind of religious association, enough of this association of being a beneficial animal, that it kind of immunized them until the 19th century of this sort of systematic annihilation that wolves would face um, in the Western world. So, so if, they were, if they were kind of sort of protected... Uh, how did it go so wrong so fast? That very question was at the heart of the study because one of my assumptions was when I started the book project was surely 2,000 years of religious association, uh, surely 2,000 years of being um, contextualized within this uh, Confucian world would have immunized the animals from annihilation. So what went wrong? You know, was it rabies? Was it the fact that they were preying on horses in some of these um, in some of these feudal domains? And as it turns out, it had to do with some of the transformations that Japan underwent in 1868 and afterwards during what is called the Meiji period, when Japan begins a process of westernizing and modernizing because of the pressure that was placed on Japan by uh, Western imperialism 
basically the United States under Commodore Matthew C. Perry, uh, opens Japan, uh, threatens Japan that if it doesn't open up to Western diplomacy and commerce, uh, that it's going to be essentially bombarded by these new coal-fired steamships that have come to Edo Bay and are threatening the, the regime. So Japan opens up, and as they begin to redefine uh, their culture to become more modern and to become more westernized so as to compete with the West and be able to protect themselves from Western imperialism, um, part of that package um, is scientific agriculture, um, it's livestock, uh, it's kind of interesting, but in 1873, for example, the emperor uh, of Japan eats beef for the first time. There is a power of beef uh, advertising campaign that took place in the late 19th century Japan. And a lot of historians have talked about this as an attempt to almost modernize the Japanese body. That just as the country was modernizing with railways, with telegraphs, with steamships, with the kind of modern um, technologies that Western nations had, there was also belief that you needed to redefine the boundaries of Japanese consumption so as to modernize the body as well. So right after the Meiji Restoration of 1868, you have all these new food and consumption items that are coming into Japan, everything from lemonade to canned foods to apples. Uh, but beef and livestock is going to be a part of it, the idea that you're going to be eating more meat um, is part of that westernization of the country. And so in order to do that, uh, the Japanese government on the island of Hokkaido, for example, um, where, which was just newly being colonized, it had been inhabited by the Ainu uh, up until about 1868, uh, invite these Western experts in. Um, many of them in agriculture were from the United States, and they were based in the land-grant colleges of the U.S. because the land-grant colleges had been expert at supplying people with the kind of mechanical skills that are required for opening and colonizing new lands. You know, so the, the land-grant system had been a very important part of the U.S.'s westward expansion in opening up new lands to agriculture. So the Japanese liked that model. So they brought in agricultural experts to Japan, many of them from the United States, um, to oversee uh, this kind of colonization of the Northern Ireland. But all of these people came in and they said, one, you need to have livestock, and two, if you're going to have livestock, you need to get rid of your wolves. And so strychnine is imported from the United States, and under the, um, the advice of these experts, people like Edwin Dunn, who was a rancher from Ohio, um, came in, they started lacing carcasses with poison, uh, and within about a decade, they had managed to kill uh, all the wolves in Hokkaido, and then shortly thereafter, all of the wolves in Honshu. But what interests me was, you know, we place a lot of weight in the power of these cultures. We say, well, wolves were worshipped. Their statues are at these shrines. People brought home these talisman and kept them in their home. And uh, wolves are talked about in Japan's creation myth, and they hold this important place. But as it turns out, when you bring that, bring that new agricultural system, when you bring in that new economy, that new material world, um, everything changes. And within about a decade or so, the wolves were hunted to extinction, um, both by Japanese hands and by the expert hands of Western ranchers. So I guess what struck me was the power of that transformation, or how directly this new economic reality of livestock 
how quickly that was able to transform thousands of years of Japanese culture. I'm really interested in the opposite of that, right? Mm-hmm. How, how the wolf got transformed into this sort of noble creature in the United States over the course of only about 100 years. Well, I, you know, that's got its own history that's, um, you know, interwoven with the history of conservationism, Aldo Leopold's famous right essay where he talks about shooting this mother wolf and watching the, right, the yellow shine in her eyes disappear as he watches her die. And he becomes, this is when he begins to formulate this thinking like a mountain hypothesis. And wolves become, you know, in Yellowstone, for example, they're a kind of keystone species in the sense that without them, uh, the health of the ecosystem as we understand it begins to degenerate. So when I was writing the book, I spent a lot of time in Yellowstone National Park working with Doug Smith and other people that are involved with the Wolf, Wolf Project there. It's interesting, at one point I had uh, grant money to go to Japan to do archival work, but instead I asked officials at the university if I could just go work on this winter biological study in the park because I wanted to have a really strong scientific component to wolves in the book. In fact, one of the things I wanted to try to do was to try to use modern wolf science to kind of give wolves a voice in the story so that it wasn't just dependent on this human perspective, that it actually had an animal perspective in the story. But one of the things that I learned pretty quickly was that the lack of wolves in Yellowstone had a devastating impact on the environment. Uh, there's these, I don't know if you've seen them, you probably have these enclosures where they've, uh, they call them um, exclosures, I think is what the words are, where they um, they put fences around um, a little section of, of, of land somewhere like in the Lamar Valley so that elk and bison actually can't go there. And inside these fenced exclosures you have um, aspens, you have cottonwoods, you have all these different kinds of trees that are grown growing that are essentially non-existent everywhere else because of overgrazing. And that's changed the ecology, the park, the, the kinds of birds that are there, uh, the number of big game. And so there, was, there came to be this belief that you can't have a kind of healthy environment in a place like Yellowstone if you don't have wolves. And so wolf reintroduction becomes kind of the cornerstone of the Endangered Species Act, um, the revitalization of the Yellowstone ecology, and I think in that way, slowly but surely, or maybe a little bit like whales with the initial Greenpeace campaign to save the whales, wolves become a kind of charismatic species um, for almost more symbolic than actually real for the power of these conservation movements. And you know, wolves, this is one of the things about you know, living in Montana, is that wolves carry an enormous amount of burden. And um, you know, for ranchers and people that don't like wolves, uh, the species is still kind of symbolic as a devil. I mean, it's seen as, um, I mean, to hear some ranchers talk about wolves, you would think they were talking about Satan himself. And then to hear some environmentalists talk about wolves, you think they were talking about angels themselves. And I think the important point is that wolves are neither, right? They are neither angels nor devils. They are just animals. And, um, and I think that the sooner that the wolf becomes demystified in that way, probably the sooner that wolves are going to become a kind of healthy species in, in our environment again. That's a really interesting perspective because I've been thinking about this, that the defense that the 
environmental movement has generally taken is to try and, and do the opposite, to elevate wolves into a mythological sort of thing, trying to, trying to protect them from the demon image, right, to just do the opposite. You can kind of see why they do that, right? I mean... I can, and I, it seems in one sense to have been effective, but then it shows, your, your counterexample shows how brittle that is. Yeah. I mean, I, one time, so when I was doing this work in Yellowstone, I, I had a chance to meet a lot of people that were associated with the reintroduction project and this and that. And one of the people, one of the regional heads of wolf reintroduction is a guy named Ed Bangs. And he, he oftentimes talked about the, you know, the importance of this demystifying wolves. And one of the real controversial moments in this was, at least in the state of Montana, was when wolves were going to be delisted. They would no longer be protected by the federal government and they would instead be managed by the state government. And in the case of Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana, I think Montana probably had by far the most progressive state policies towards wolves. But nonetheless, there were going to be a certain number of these wolves that were going to be hunted every year. You know, you could buy a hunting license and go hunt wolves in Montana. And I think to a lot of environmentalists, including myself, when I first heard that, I thought, oh no, here we go again. You know, now that the federal government is over, isn't overseeing wolves anymore, you're going to have um, now these sort of rapacious state policies that aren't going to be concerned about overall wolf numbers and you're just going to hunt them to extinction again. And indeed in the case of Idaho and Wyoming, you kind of had that. Neither the Idaho nor the Wyoming uh, wolf management plans were particularly good. Montana's on the other hand wasn't bad, even though it involves hunting. And when I first expressed some concern with that to colleagues that, you know, do we really need to start shooting wolves again? Because part of it is, right, I mean, the Endangered Species Act is fairly clear on some of these things, right? The animals are going to be returned to their, at least to what we can establish as their historic numbers. And it can be, you know, through the work of historians and ecologists and others, pretty well established that there were probably tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of wolves in Montana, you know, probably even as recent as, you know, the early part of the 19th century. But they were trapped and hunted to extinction. And you know, right now there's, you know, hundreds of them. So the question is, well, how many wolves do we bring back? And I think Ed Banks' a whole idea of demystifying the wolf and hunting them, you know, he kept on saying, just hunt them. Just turn them into one more species that's managed by the state governments, that, you know, that, that the state governments oversee like they do elk and like they do bighorn sheep and a lot of these other animals that are in Montana. And the sooner that you do that, the sooner that you will transform them both from angels and demons into another animal that's managed by the states, if the states can get some ownership of that process, right, it, that's when we have the best chance of actually having sustainable wolf populations. And over time, I came to believe that he and others that were thinking along those lines were right. And so rather than be a vocal opponent to wolf hunting, which personally I don't support, and I've actually done a fair amount of hunting myself, um, because I just didn't think shooting wolves was a good idea. There, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that when wolves are shot in Montana, it's oftentimes the wrong wolves are shot. Uh, well, a lot of times it's leaders of packs or it's parents. You begin to have juvenile animals that um, have not been properly trained by their parents. It's those animals are the ones that kill people's dogs. It's those animals who oftentimes get into livestock because they haven't had time to learn 
from these older members of their pack. In Africa, where as a result of some of these culling campaigns that they would have in Kenya and elsewhere, they would go out and they would cull these magnificent adult bull elephants because they had these large tusks and you know, it was, you know, people would pay a lot of money to go shoot those animals to try to keep the populations down. But they later found out that these younger bull elephants were actually attacking rhinoceros and other animals because they were essentially juvenile delinquents. They hadn't had time to learn from the elder members of their, of their herds or of their packs. And, and the same thing has been happening in Montana where you know, it, hunters don't know that. I mean, hunters, when, they're, when they have an animal in their crosshairs, they don't know what the, the social status of that particular animal is within the pack that it is. Um, is it a juvenile or is it an adult? Is it an alpha or is it a beta? And that's when, you know, wolves are so sophisticated, I mean, socially speaking, that killing the wrong wolf can lead to actually not a decrease in predation, but an increase in predation. So even though I would say that overall I kind of a, I'm a, a sort of lukewarm supporter, I guess, of the current management plan to hunt wolves, I would say that um, I think it's an overly simplistic way to approach it given the complexities of wolf society. And that, that is really fascinating because I'm now thinking about sort of the, the drug war kind of thing of, of you know, always wanting to take out the big guy but then do you accidentally trigger a gang war by, by you know, removing, removing the head of it? Do you, do you think of any sort of lessons in these, these two opposite sort of wolf stories uh, for other species? I, I interviewed uh, a hyena biologist, and she's really deeply involved with trying to save hyena species in Africa. And they have, mm -hmm. they have very much the same sort of public relations kind of problem because they're seen as dirty scavengers rather than as the hunters that they are. What kind of lessons can we take from the, from the rehabilitation of the wolf? One of the lessons is once you, once you annihilate a species like that, once you exterminate a species, they're gone. There has been some attempts to try to reintroduce wolves to Japan there has been a pretty concerted effort um, because of overpopulated, uh, some of the big national parks in Japan are overpopulated with deer. They're killing trees. There's this overpopulation of deer. And so some people have suggested that wolves be introduced into Japan. And it hasn't gained much traction, largely because there's a lot of complicating factors. There's, very, there's a large number of feral dogs within Japan, and it's, it's w well understood that when wolves uh, breed with feral dogs, the animals that are, you know, those hybrid animals can oftentimes be troublemakers. If you remember any of my rants on the Russian Belyev's experiments on taming foxes, the main trait they were breeding for was no fear of people. Most animals only attack when they're cornered and they can't run away. They don't hunt people. But uh, Belyev's experiments was a consistent, controlled breeding program. Those foxes were in cages. When you start letting dogs and wolves breed in an uncontrolled way... Yeah, they're not afraid of people, exactly. They seem to get kind of the worst traits from both, almost. And it's, they're not very afraid of people. And Japan's a very dense, densely populated place. 
what's interesting about Japan is that there's been this demographic shift where a lot of the countryside of Japan, a lot of the places that have been traditionally involved with agriculture have been depopulated as young people move to the cities. So the kind of place where these wolves would be roaming around would be really populated mainly by a bunch of elderly Japanese overseeing these modest farms. You know, a lot of people suggest it's just not a particularly good idea. I mean, again, Japan's about the same size as California, and it's got a population of about half the United States. So it's just a pretty densely populated place. But once again, the point being is that the Japanese have come to understand that wolves held a very important place within Japan's ecosystem. And once they were removed, it's very hard to go back. And um, it's also hard to go back for cultural reasons because the Japanese wolf was a, a distinctive species or subspecies. Um, it was unique to the islands. Um, it was unique to that particular ecological niche. It had undergone evolutionary dwarfing as a, as a result of the size of the, size of the islands. Um, it had its own um, sort of intermixing of Japanese religious history and cultural history that was unique to the species. And the closest approximation would probably be wolves from Mongolia, but that's not really the same thing. You know, the niche species that had once lived in Japan was gone, and once it was annihilated, you simply can't go back. Breaking in once again, for a valid scientific reason this time, I promise. I probably need to expand on Dr. Walker's casual use of the phrase evolutionary dwarfing. It's a pretty common thing that animals confined to islands do odd things, like birds losing the ability to fly because there are no predators around, or small predators getting really big because there's no other competition, like the fusa on Madagascar, which is really just a great big mongoose. Uh, or sometimes they get really small because there's not much food of any kind around. There were these four-foot-tall mammoths on some islands off the Russian coast as little as 4,000 years ago. The tiny human fossils from Flores would be another example. Apparently, these Japanese wolves were about the size of a border collie or a coyote. And so I think, you know, at least at least one of the superficial lessons, or maybe maybe it's not so superficial, is that, you know, when you undertake these uh, campaigns to, uh, to engineer the natural world in some respect, you have to be very, um, I think you have to be very aware of what the ultimate consequences of that could be because oftentimes you can't go back. That's something that the United States is grappling with right now is, you know, even though we've reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone, those wolves are not really the ones that are threatened. You know, it's wolves that are living in Idaho and Wyoming that are being so relentlessly hunted right now, or wolves in Alaska that are being hunted aerially. Um, you know, those are the populations of wolves that I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, are those the right strategies for management? Because once you, you know, embark on a certain path, sometimes you simply can't go back. So, you know, the, the lesson is a historical and it's an ecological one in the sense that wolves really do hold a very important place in the ecological balance. Um, in our world, but also they've oftentimes held very important places in our cultural milieu as well. And that was only part of our conversation. At some point we'll revisit, maybe. But I want to end here with the depressing idea that the almighty buck 
the power of beef, the drive to succeed and breed and compete can overwhelm any and all protections that the culture tries to build in. I think that may be true. But it's not the process of competition that's the problem, necessarily. If we can define the goal of the cultural evolutionary arms race as biodiversity, if we can make health, wealth, and most importantly, prestige, if we can make those dependent on a sustainable lifestyle, then it'll work. That's all the time we have for this week. Episodes will be a little sporadic while I'm traveling this summer, but if you are a subscriber, that doesn't matter. Whenever I put anything up, whether it's a blog post or a podcast episode, you will get it automatically. Isn't that a great idea? Just push the subscribe button on the webpage, variationselectioninheritance.podbean.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Twitter. VSI is produced by me, Randall Hayes, at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University with funding from the National Science Foundation. Thanks for listening.